You're listening to the RSA Conference podcast, where the world talks security. Hi, everyone. Welcome to the RSA Conference podcast. This is Britta Glade, Director of Content and Curation for RSA Conference, and I'm happy to be joined by Hugh Thompson, Program Committee Chair for RSA Conference. Hello, Hugh. And hello, Britta, and hello, listeners. As 2018 draws to a close, we've been reflecting on the key trends and inflection points that we as an industry have been going through. This human element has always been a very important part of the security discussion. But I think this year in 2018, we really pushed the forefront and were able to see some of the biggest dangers of this human element uh, take shape, especially in the form of social engineering. Is the new norm in hacking social engineering? And will 2019 bring even more human-laced attacks? Today, we're joined by two of our most popular RSA conference presenters on a human topic, Ira Winkler and Lance Hayden. Gentlemen, welcome. And please introduce yourselves to our listeners. This is Ira Winkler. I'm president of Securementum, which focuses on the human aspects of security and other things. And I'm also author of the, my latest book, Advanced Persistent Security, which is awesome. Anyway, I'll leave it at that. <laughs> I, like, I like the built-in book review. No, that's great. Okay, and, and we're also joined by Lance Hayden. Lance, can you give a few words about yourself to our audience? Sure, thanks. Uh, my name's Lance Hayden. I've been in security for about uh, 30 years. I've had a lot of different roles. I've been a CISO. Uh, I've been a consultant. And way back in the early days, uh, I, was, I was even uh, an intelligence officer, uh, which is what first got me interested in, uh, in the human uh, angle of security to begin with. And so uh, I've studied and researched that for, for many years and, and written a book called People-Centric Security, which tries to go in and more empirically model how we can get it at human security and culture uh, in protecting our infrastructures. That's great. Thank you both for being here. And it sounds like we've got some good reading lists for people over, over winter holidays that are coming up. So um, take a look at the, the books that we'll have linked in here. Um, Ira, I'm going to start with you for a question. I know you have some pretty strong opinions about social engineering. In a nutshell, you've said it's not about training people to watch out for bad actors. Here's how they behave but rather this is how you should do things correctly. So let's start this conversation with a stake in the ground. Why is this differentiation important? Well, here's the thing. I use, um, if anybody saw my presentation last year with Tracy Celaya, I came up with the analogy of creating essentially Elmer Fudd or creating grandma. Most security programs regarding security, well, social engineering, are basically creating Elmer Fudd saying, always be on the lookout for the wascally wabbit. And everybody is there saying, oh, hackers are going to try to trick you. They're going to try to do this. They're going to try to do that. And I saw one security awareness company focusing on, we make people afraid to check their emails. I'm like, no, that's absolutely wrong. The job of security is to get people to do their jobs securely and be confident in how they do that. So anyway, going down to what I mean by grandma's house, when you go to grandma's house, 
Let's say you go there with your parents for a big family dinner. You go there, your parents tell you when your grandma opens up the door, you're going to go in, you're going to hug grandma and kiss her. You're going to be like, no, she smells. It's like, I don't care. You're going to hug and kiss your grandma inside the door because she's superstitious. And then you're going to go ahead and you're going to sit where you're the only place left to sit because everybody else knows where to sit and everybody does the right thing because everybody does the right thing. Now, going on to how this impacts security and why people should be doing things right in the first place, generally when you we're going to come up on W-2 season and W-2 frauds really quickly now. And right now, the way traditional social engineering security awareness is done, you're going to be training HR people to basically say, hey, there are going to be people trying to pretend to be somebody and trying to get you to mail out HR information. We don't want you to do that. Be on the lookout. And they would be like, well, gee, they'll pretend to be the CEO. But what happens if somebody emails you pretending to be somebody else? They'll be like, oh, is this the wascally wabbit? The way it should be done is if you're a low-level analyst, you should be sitting, or HR analyst, and you get an email, you should know what is the process for distributing information. And it should be there's an established process for releasing PII-related information, and it'll be like, okay, if I'm going to send PII information out, it's going to be encrypted to a known source, and the IT department is going to be able to enable the encryption. Number two, in the first place, the request should come directly from my manager. The manager is only allowed to authorize that if it comes from the CFO or general counsel or whoever. And so you have an HR person there. That HR person shouldn't be saying, is this the wascally wabbit trying to trick me? That HR person should be saying, well, even if it is from the CEO, the CEO should have contacted my manager first, who should have the approval of so-and-so, the CFO. And so the process should be, hey, I'm not going to decide if this is a, the wascally wabbit or not. I'm going to go to my manager and say, hey, manager, did you authorize this? Do you know anything about it? The manager is going to be like, no, I should check with the CFO. Can you know, some social engineer possibly go through all that? Yeah, maybe somebody is going to be a really good trickster, but odds are they're not that sophisticated. And if they are that sophisticated, you have a lot more to worry about. So again, you're not, you shouldn't have a low-level person on the front lines of organized crime, sociopaths and everything. There should be an established process to do things right so that that low-level person doesn't have the discretion to do it wrong. Sorry, that's my rant for the morning. I'll let somebody else. Talk. No, man, I, I I like the rant. It's always good to start with a rant. And and Lance, let me bring you into this. And it, listening to to Ira's kind of self-described rant, um, I think there's a lot of there's a lot of wisdom in there. Uh, a lot of folks that are trying to do their jobs. You know, often when they're put under time pressure or when social engineers uh, use some of the tricks of the trade, like, you know, pretending to come from their boss and using authority and, you know, trying to get, uh, uh, trying to get them to do things that maybe they normally wouldn't do. I I'm just curious, how do you think the practice of social engineering as applied by the attacker has changed over the last few years? Do you feel that it's changed? And is this threat getting worse or better, or is it the same as it's always been? 
Yeah, so, um, you know, I look at I look at this. I started out my career 30 years ago as as again, like I said, a, a human intelligence officer. And so for me, um, I never think social engineering is something that's new. It's actually the for for me the oldest attack in the book. We've been we've been doing it forever, and and it's about sort of um, you know someone realizing that they can take advantage of another person's um, naivete or vulnerabilities personality or, or personally, um, or, or just their, their innate trust, gullibility, whatever you want to call it. Um, but it's an inherently human problem, and it, and it pre-exists technology by a long, long time. And, and so, you know, I, I don't think that it's anything particularly new. I think one of the reasons that it's becoming um, so prevalent and, and so sort of common and, and dangerous today is is it, at the end of the day the way that I like to treat it is is this is an infrastructure problem and um, and what's happening is attackers are realizing that that some of the infrastructures that they've traditionally tried to go at around technology and, and other areas that, that the attack surfaces of those have been fairly locked down but there's a very ripe attack surface around the human infrastructure that security um, you know to its discredit has not paid very much attention to over the years. And, you know, I, I always, we've talked for as long as I've been in security, we've talked about security as a people process and technology problem. And those are describing sort of the three primary infrastructures uh, within any kind of organizational security program within any really organization in general. Um, and <laughs> what I like to use, the analogy I like to use is it's, it's, it's like that, we do security. We're like that guy at the gym and everybody's run into this person at the gym. And it's this individual that, you know, is, is, is always in the gym, but they're always doing upper body work, you know? And so they, they've got uh, this enormous torso. They can bench press a small car, uh, but they don't ever do leg day. And so, you know, they've got skinny little legs and they never get on a treadmill. So their cardio, you know, if you put them on one for five minutes, they pass out. And so it's this sort of overweighted portfolio and when you bring that into the security the reason we're like that guy is because we are when we start talking about people process and technology we mostly focus on technology so we're again we're like that guy we got this enormous technology torso that's really buff and strong but we've got these skinny little process legs that we're standing on because we don't pay nearly as much attention to that and people are like cardio you know human beings don't have a command line interface so therefore they're inscrutable so therefore the best way to handle that infrastructure is to try and automate it out of existence and you know again you can throw tons of different analogies at that but if you have again a, a three-legged stool and two of the legs aren't as long as the other one, that's not going to be a very stable piece of furniture. And it doesn't work when you're talking about furniture, and it doesn't work when you're talking about security programs. And so the reason that social engineering is this big bugbear right now, despite being probably the oldest attack, in my opinion, is simply because that is the least analyzed and least addressed security infrastructure that we have. And we have uh, neglected it for a long time and hackers and attackers aren't dumb. And eventually they get wise to, oh, this is where the most vulnerable attack surface is. This is where I'm going to go with my attacks. And it's as simple as that. Yeah. Um, can I add to what Lance said or do you have a question? Sorry. No, no, go for it, Ira. Really. Okay, so I think the Lance is like people process technology, I agree with. However, one thing that's critical is there needs to be coordination. 
There's a difference between being a stool and trying to balance yourself on three poles. And the problem when you're dealing with a human issue, using that analogy, is that most people are balancing on three poles, not having a stool to bring it together. I mean, that's my latest article on human security officers, somebody to bring that together because, yeah, somebody's going ahead and somebody is saying, okay, we should have like antivirus software, we should buy, you know, anti-spam software. And then somebody's out there putting together an awareness program, and I'll come back to that in a second. And then somebody else is out there saying, well, we have these policies, procedures, and guidelines, and we're going to have that. But nobody is there saying, like in my previous analogy, okay, somebody is going to attack a human asking for PII. What is the process for that, bringing it all together? And just using my example, the process should be in the first place, if somebody sends an email saying I'm the CEO, a spam filter or something should potentially filter that out or isolate that message. Then, okay, the user has processes, procedures, and guidelines that are coordinated and say, okay, we understand somebody's going to try to trick somebody, not what is a policy we show to auditors once a year, and how, from a human's perspective, do we implement procedures that say step-by-step step how to make sure this doesn't happen, and then the user has to be made aware of what those processes to do it right are, and then from that point, then there's also some technology like data leak prevention software that stops it from getting out if the user falls for it. So again, we need the process people and technology, but it has to be coordinated. Now, along with that, the other part is the problem of making people aware of social engineering. There's this kind of, I, I mean, I've hated this. You know, I've been known for saying, you know, you can train a monkey to hack a computer in a few hours, which to a certain extent is true. Because really, here's the problem. Breaking into something is completely different than stopping it. And in our world, we have people say, oh, well, that guy knows how to break into a computer. Let's make him fix it as his punishment. Just because you can break a light bulb doesn't mean you could put the light bulb together or invent the light bulb in the first place. Likewise with people, I hear everybody saying, okay, well, a hacker is going to try to trick you. Tell people not to fall for that trick. It's much in the same way. You can't just make it that simple because that's another part of what Lance was alluding to. You can't just make it simple and say, well, let's just tell people not to fall for these tricks, which is currently the state. I hate to call it the state of the art. It's the state of the lack of the art and awareness because right now we're training people and we're giving people squishy toys and trying to get people to remember things. I describe it as being a sommelier where – you try to make awareness funny so they remember it a few seconds longer than they otherwise would, we need to have an awareness program that really creates the culture. And that's another aspect. We need to create a culture. We can try to work with the culture to improve it. If you want to have it like I worked at NSA, Lance worked at CIA, you know, you don't wear your badge when you're inside the building. You get stopped. Believe me, you're going to wear a badge. You know, we go ahead, and if we're sitting there and saying, oh, I'm sorry, I left this top-secret document in my pocket as I walked out, hell, you might get arrested first before they investigate. So we've got to go ahead, and the state-of-the-art in what we're doing to prevent or educate people about social engineering is rather poor. I'll leave it at that for now. Sorry, I ranted again.
No, no, I love all the analogies flying. I can tell you both are so focused on the human awareness and how our brains remember things and process. There's been many, many analogies flying here. So, Lance, I'm going to circle back to you from the um, self-proclaimed first IRA rant. What do you think is most effective? Um, and, and, you know, and backing this up with our human element track at RSA conference has exploded over the past few years, both in terms of you know, people who are showing up to attend the sessions, as well as the number of sessions that are being submitted of people wanting to speak in that track. Um, and and there, is a, there is a growing divide with um, you know, how do we best teach employees? Do we reward? Do we shame? Um, I, I suppose we could draw these same parallels into you know parenting being done and, and different things people are putting out there to how do I teach my child about bullying um, you know what what's most effective how do we really 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 move the needle on changing how employees behave well so uh, that's a really good question and I'm going to loop back and kind of tie it into what um, Ira was saying earlier too because I, I, I compl- I'm, I'm in violent agree with, agreement with him with, with the difference between the stool analogy and, and the trying to balance on three poles. We have to bring these things together uh, and, and often they're done uh, in, in siloed ways and, and as separate kinds of, um, of activities. And, and even worse than that, they're often done in silos that have more or less antipathy towards one another. Uh, nothing makes me madder than hearing one group you know, the, the whole concept of if you can't patch stupid, uh, you know, that, that I hear that all the time. And stupid is always what someone else is doing. You know, it's never the mistake you made. It's always the mistake someone else made. So everybody thinks everybody's stupid. And that doesn't really lend itself to effective security culture. Um, and so, you know, I think that one of the areas is, 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 is it reward? Is it punish? I tend to go a third route and say it's include. And, you know, one of the areas where I think is seeing this cutting edge, you know, where you're really seeing this kind of bringing things together is in the DevOps and more specifically the DevSecOps space where, you know, coming out of development teams and, you know, agile software uh, mechanisms, we're realizing that we have to pull these disparate groups together. And, and in DevOps, you know, it was that idea of bridging the gap between sort of development and, and, um, and operations and making them work together. Uh, and then the natural progression of that is, is moving security into that too. But, but the way that that works is you have to create a tightly coupled system where um, security isn't an afterthought or, and isn't sort of an outsider that is brought in to advise or comment on what the other teams are doing. This is a tightly coupled unit that has elements of all three in the context of software development and software deployment uh, in, in modern sort of software architectures. And so that's one where they really get it that you, they're all bringing critical functionality whether that's you know functional or non-functional requirements, those requirements are being met by these teams in a very specific way. And I think trying to push that out to the rest of the organization and areas that aren't necessarily development operations, but just sort of business operations, um, we still have a long way to go on that, but that's probably a very fruitful angle. I see a lot of potential there. 
Um, the other thing that, you know, it's interesting. I read, uh, Ira, I read your article on the, on the case for the human security officer in, in dark reading, and it really kind of struck me uh, going back. You know, we talked about both of our mutual experiences in the intelligence community. And I, as I was reading it, and I'm, I'm like, Iris describing essentially a, a counterintelligence chief. I mean, that's, you know, again, looping back to this not being a new problem. Uh, when, when I was an intelligence officer, um, we had a specific role and a specific group within the intelligence agency that was, that was inward looking. It was designed not just to, uh, to Iris' point, to point out and, and slap people on the wrist for bad behavior. This was someone that was responsible for understanding the human vulnerabilities and the human security posture within that organization in a way that would prevent secrets from being lost, whether those secrets were inadvertently lost or whether they were lost because someone tried to penetrate the intelligence agency. And so I see that, uh, echoes in that as I was reading Ira's article that that's sort of what this role needs to be. And I think the irony of that is if you go back and you look at, you know, I just finished this great book. Uh, I like spy books. And so, I, you know, Ben McIntyre's latest book, The Spy and the Traitor, about uh, Oleg, Gord uh, Oleg Gordievsky, who was a, a major KGB defector to MI6, talked about this. And, and the problem was that uh, Gordievsky was given up by, a, uh, by another traitor named uh, Aldrich Ames. And Ames was, ironically, the chief of counterintelligence for Soviet intelligence inside the CIA. And so even way back then when this happened, the problem is, is that counterintelligence, just like sort of security awareness today, wasn't really considered the cool job within intelligence or as, as security awareness still kind of, even though we're getting more traction on the human security side, it's still not considered as cool as being an offensive hacker. And again, that was something else Ira talked about. I think that what we need to do is really humanize security and make it clear that, you know, if you have an organization and you go to that organization tonight and you throw all your technology out the window, when everybody shows up for work tomorrow morning, you're still going to have an organization because at the end of the day, an organization is made up of people working towards a common purpose. If you go to your organization tonight and you fire everybody, what's going to happen tomorrow is you're not going to have an organization. You're going to have a heat sink full of blinky lights and wires and whirring fans that's basically just a warehouse of gear that doesn't really have a purpose anymore because without the people, it isn't an organization. And if we're going to improve organization security, if we're going to improve enterprise security, then we have got to get it into our heads that the first line of defense is the people that make up that enterprise and addressing those human problems and to Iris' point, not turning this into an adversarial relationship, but turning it into a collaborative one is going to be absolutely critical. And, and again, we've known this for years and years and years. It's the only way to fight the problem. Yeah. And just let me, sorry, let me. Yeah, you know, go ahead, Ara. Because um, I have like another way of looking at it. You're saying is it the carrot or the stick? It shouldn't necessarily be either because here's the thing. When somebody comes in, you know, do you tell a, a new employee, it's like, well, we'd really like you to fill out a time card because we need to track it, and it's really important for our processes, and so please fill out the time card. It's like they fill out the time card because they don't get paid if they don't fill out the time card. It's not a punishment. It's not a carrot. It's basically this is part of your job function. At what point – I mean, this is – I was on a panel, like a keynote panel for ISACA a few weeks ago, 
And I was sitting there with a bunch of CISOs, and they were like saying, oh, well, we can't blame the user. I'm like, why isn't security a fundamental expectation of their job? Why does it seem like we have to encourage them to do what should be a critical part of their job? And that's something that has baffled me. I mean, if you go like an accountant, you, you don't hire an accountant and say, look, you're an accountant. You're supposed to track our money and make sure everything's okay. Well, here's our accounting software, and, you know, generally use this. Oh, and people are going to try to steal it, try to do it right and find those people. You don't do that. You basically hire a new accountant. You say, here's the software. Here's, the, you know, here's basically how you do your job. Here's how you categorize everything. You do your job A, B, C, D, exactly like this, like everybody else has been doing it. And if there's any discrepancies, let us know, because then we will investigate. Why isn't security, you know, checking things, wearing a badge, you know, making sure people don't follow you in? Just a fundamental expectation of this is how you do your job right as part of doing it right, as, as like every other aspect of their job. I'll leave it at that for now. Well, and no, so, I, I, you know, I think that there's, I, I think that Iris got a point there, but I also think that there's a, a counterpoint to be made, and that's that, you know, there's cultural conflicts that happen that influence this. And so, you know, the idea of, uh, Ira, you mentioned tailgating and, and the idea of, hey, you know, why isn't it just an expectation that you would check people's badges as, as part of just, that's just a fundamental expectation of your job. Um, and and I, I can totally see that. I think, though, that what we often do is we often give people inside organizations competing cultural sort of priorities. And so in the case of tailgating, what I've seen in my experience is that the two cultural sort of traits that come into direct conflict there are the security culture, which is trust no one, verify everything. And the more sort of trust and, and so, you know, how many organizations like to think of themselves, we're not a company, we're a family, we all trust each other, we're all in this together. And when you put those two things together, what you end up with is if you're coming in the door and you see someone coming in heavy, carrying sort of a heavy package and struggling to get the door open, you immediately get this sort of cognitive dissonance. Oh, do I stop this person and say, hey, before you even open that door, I need to see your badge, put down your package. Or do you're like, oh, this is a colleague and someone that I work with. I'm going to open the door for them and help them because they're obviously struggling to get this package in the door. And those are something that are happening on an unconscious level. And the fact of the matter is, as human beings, most of us, and Ira, I'm not sure this applies to you, but you know, most <laughs> of us prefer to be trusting first and, you know, skeptical and suspicious after, no, I, you know, it, it okay, feels me, better to trust. Okay, let me interrupt you slightly, and then I, I will <laughs> just make this point. I am not saying that, what I'm saying is, I am, we are here identifying, for lack of a better term, an ideal and a principle. The fundamental principle is, and I use tailgating as examples, where there's expectations of doing things right. Um, I appreciate what you're saying that we have to change it. The problem, though, I see with security and handling the human, and I'll, I'll address it this way in summary, is that the problem is we have people who are afraid to address the culture of the organization as a whole, that they think we're, we don't want to impact anybody, we, we want to be friendly, and we're not going to set up any strong expectations 
So we're just going to try to make people more aware. And if they're more aware, oh, yeah, they will do it because that's the, they, they'll know it's the right thing to do. That doesn't work. I'm not saying – here's the thing. Security is not about perfection. Security will never be perfect, and, yes, there will always be people who will allow a tailgater through. The issue, though, is do we, do we allow cultures and – and because everybody says we want to create a culture. You, don't, you have to define a culture. It's kind of like if I take my kids to a buffet and I can sit there and tell my kids, okay, you should have fruits and vegetables and primarily, you know, sorry, Lance is a vegetarian. It, it's sick, it would be sickening to go to a buffet with Lance. But anyway, if you have all these – if you tell your kids everything and you should have fruits and vegetables, they will go to the buffet. You leave them on their own. They will go to the buffet. They will come back with a grape and say, look, I got a fruit. Didn't I do good? And that grape is on top of every type of chocolate cake and ice cream and everything else that they could have got. Because that's what happens when you let people to define their own culture, even if you educate them. So it's not about, yes, there will be some sort of angst and competition between people wanting to be human and people wanting to be secure. But the problem is we've abdicated you know, or I should say security programs in general have abdicated their power or authority to, like, the whims of average users. And I'm not saying there's, like, a, like one or the other, but I'm saying they've kind of totally given up and said, we'll just encourage people to do things right, and that's just so wrong. Well, and I think that, you know, I think that, why, uh, that uh, Ira makes a really good point about um, – you know, security, I think that security is not about fear. It's not about, you know, carrot sticks, all that. It's really about habit and, and creating these habits. And, and the analogy of, of the buffet and, and, you know, trying to get your kids to eat right, I think another way of looking at it is to say, let's say we go to that same buffet and I tell my kids, yeah, you know, you should be eating fruits and vegetables and all this healthy stuff. And then I go to the buffet and I come back with the meatloaf and the cornbread stuffing and the chocolate pie and the one grape. Uh, you know, my kids aren't stupid. They're going to look at that and they're going to be like, okay, yeah, do what I say, not what I do. Um, and, and I think there's a lot of that going on, too. I, you know, it's one thing to talk about uh, everybody in the organization should understand security as a good business practice and do the right thing. But let's face it, there's a lot of times when, you know, the cliches are we'll go in and, and that only applies to users. It doesn't apply to senior management. It may not even apply to security team. You know, I've been in situations where the security team um, can can be fairly, you know, dictatorial and, and arrogant about, you know, how they look at the rest of the organization. It's hard to go in and tell someone out of one side of your mouth, you're a very important part of this and you really need to understand how to do things right. Uh, and out the other side of your mouth, be like, but you're not really smart enough on these issues uh, to really make any informed decisions. So you should defer to me on everything. And, and you know, I, I think that, again, culture is a complex beast and it has a lot of different sort of competing priorities. And most of those priorities, to make it even harder, are not even competing at the level of conscious thought. Culture is not something people go into an organization and recognize um, on a day-to-day -day basis. Oh, this is my culture. Oh, I'm doing something cultural right now. It is, it is 
it's something that's transparent. It fades into the background. It's just, you know, one of the best definitions of it is culture is just the way we do things around here. And so that gets ingrained as habit. And I, I agree with Ira. Uh, Ira, I agree with you. I think that, that you know, one of the things that we've got to do is figure out how we change habits. And whether or not, you know, the current state of the art on awareness campaigns is, is effective and the squishies and the gamification and everything else. I, you know, I, I, I tend to have my own sort of skepticism on some of that as well. Uh, but what I do think it is, is I think it's an attempt to try and find a different avenue to get at this problem and to really start trying to make micro changes in people's habits and perceptions that could potentially lead to that state that, that you're talking about where we want to get to people where it's much more of an innate sort of ability. But, but I completely agree that we're nowhere near that yet and that we've got yeah, a long so, way to go. Well, the thing is, and I'll just use this as an example. You and I, you know, I use the badge as an example. Let me, like, you know, working at NSA. There was one time I was on shift work at NSA, and when I had to use one of these graphical plotters, I had to take my badge off. And everybody wore their badge at NSA, and you had to. And there was one time I was working late at night, used this plotter, left my badge on the desk, and went to the bathroom accidentally, leaving it on my on the desk. And as I was out in the hallway, there was a guard saying, where's your badge? And I was like, uh, okay, it's probably at my desk. And then he, the guard's like, okay, we're going to your desk. I'm like, you're not allowed anywhere near my desk. He's like, I'll wait by the door. So the guard waited by the door. And then I go looking for my badge, and I'm like looking around the desk. And then after, you know, if the guy sees me, he's like, are you looking for something, Ira? And it's one of my coworkers. I'm like, Where's my damn badge? And I, I was obviously cursing at him. And the guy's like, do you mean the badge that should be around your neck? I'm like, you know, and I'm like, give me my damn badge. And, you know, the guard's like, is there a problem there? Do you think I ever forgot that badge again? And the reason was it was innate in the culture that was created from management down that caused me. Because culture, when somebody asked me what is culture and what's awareness, if you have a good culture, you don't need an awareness program. Because everybody starts doing what everybody else is doing. And, and frankly, no, even if you have an awareness program, it's irrelevant. Everybody's going to do what everybody does. And so you've got to impact what everybody does if you want to have a good culture. Because at the end of the day, awareness and social engineering prevention is essentially an outgrowth of the overall culture and organizational procedures. I, I guess I should ask Lance, did we have moderators on this call or anything? Uh. <laughs> we're here, we're here. Well, we're eating <laughs> the popcorn and just listening yeah. along. It's yeah, a great just, conversation. Just letting us do us. Yeah. So no, and 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 on that note, I, I'm I'm going to dive right in there before the moderators get a chance to talk too, because I think that, you know <laughs> it's it's really you know I agree with you again. I think though that that you know culture is also more than just shared habits, and it's more than just behavioral. Um, I got my own sort of security story from the old days, and same kind of thing. I screwed up during a security. You know, we we locked everything down at night, and I didn't lock something down correctly, and and so I got written up for it. And, you know, and even more than the sting of getting written up for a security violation, what really bugged me was this sort of deep-seated fear that, you know, 
it was a sensitive business and I had let my colleagues down. You know, I could have potentially, if something had, if that had been a really bad security incident and it hadn't just been a me of not locking a safe or something, if I had actually caused some sort of sensitive information to get out, that could have compromised someone's operation. It could have potentially caused a loss of life. And so it wasn't the slap on the wrist that really bothered me. It was this idea that I had let down the other people in the organization and that if all of us didn't take this seriously and professionally, then we weren't going to have an effective intelligence organization. And so I think that in addition to the behavioral side, it's also, it's not just shared habits and behaviors, it's shared values. And that's one of the other things that has to be inculcated in the entire workforce is this idea that security is important because if we have a security incident, then someone is harmed by that incident. And not just me because I got fired or gotten written up. You know, I've let someone's medical records get out into the dark web. I've let someone's financial records get exposed, whatever. I have caused harm to somebody and I've let down my colleagues and I've let down my customers. And, I, you know, it, it is a, it's a values and, and a, a sort of prioritization of what really the company is about. As much as it is, oh, I, I don't have the right habits or I don't have the right behaviors in this particular situation. Yeah, and to go to what Lance is saying, that goes to like again three good concept, three concepts of what an awareness program is comprised of. There is at a high level awareness of what the problem is, then awareness of what the solution is, but most important, the motivation to implement the solution. And Lance described I, the ideal form of what he considered motivation for that. And I'll shut up there. No, this is, I was actually going to ask you guys for the, the wrapping points and what's nice is the closing arguments have been made by both of you. Uh, I have furiously been taking notes here. Um, interesting things. You know, it, it's, it's, it is, human being is a, is a complicated creature. Um, but I think you've, you've given our listeners all kinds of ideas in and around culture and habit and modeling and, and inclusion. Um, I love, Lance, the parallels to DevOps. Um, I'm intrigued by, by how that has developed and, and what's going on there, some, some really interesting things going on operationally and otherwise in the world of DevOps, which is also reflected at RSA Conference. Um, but this, this has been a great conversation, a lot of meaty things, a lot of actionable things, a lot of introspection that I think you'll allow for listeners. So thank you both for joining us. Thank you, Hugh, for being here on the couch with me, eating the popcorn and just listening, listening to the back and forth. This has been a really great conversation. Oh, this is great. Thanks. Thanks for joining. Thanks, everybody, and we'll see you on the next podcast.